Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Council, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, Bibi Badejo. Today's guest is Professor Joe Delahunty QC. Joe was called to the bar in 1986, took silk in 2006, and became a recorder three years later. After four years of serving as Gresham College Professor of Law, she was made Emeritus Gresham Professor of Law, Gresham Fellow, and a Gresham Trustee in 2020. Joe tends to be instructed when cases are really bad. She specialises in contentious cases involving complex medical evidence, catastrophic injuries, the death of a child, child sex abuse, and cases of fabricated or induced injury. Her clients are often the most vulnerable members of society. In this episode, Jo shares how she approaches and wins these seemingly unwinnable cases. Hi Jo. Hello Bibi. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's so great to have you here. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, please? Professionally speaking, I am Professor Joe Delahunty QC. I'm a Bentra Middle Temple. I'm a recorder. But in real terms, I'm a 58-year-old menopausal woman that's got three children, two street Spanish rescue dogs and a zacker pretty much all of the time. So yeah, that's me. And a great sense of humour too, I would add. <laughs> You're a highly sought after silk, and that's Queen's Council for those listeners who aren't in England. And you have been for a very many years. How would you describe yourself at the start of your career? And how does that compare to you as an advocate now? Well, when I first came to the bar, I only came to the bar because I was a political activist. And law, for me, was a means by which I could try to remedy some of the injustices around me. So when I started off, I was at Took's Court and I wanted to be an employment lawyer, but acting for the employees. I wouldn't have seen myself at this stage being a child abuse specialist because I'd always refused to do family law because I thought that's what women were required to do. So I didn't do it at uni. I didn't do it at bar school. I didn't do it in pupillage as a matter of political principle. And then I started doing it because I was really skint. So I started doing DV injunctions because in those days you were paid reasonably well for them and they were quick turnaround. And I started wondering about the kids I could see clinging to the mum's legs. And now I know what that phrase frozen watchfulness means, because when you see children that don't know what's going to happen around them, well, adults can be scary people. They can become chameleons. They can hide in the corner. They can become invisible. They can freeze because they don't want movement to attract attention because the attention might be negative. And that's what drove me to doing child protection work. And in all seriousness, that's when I found my vocation and that's when I became very, very ambitious for the subject as opposed to the general political principle of acting for those people who are disadvantaged and um, uh, are the type of society members that don't normally have a voice for them. So in the beginning, law was a means to try to achieve equality. Now. I think I do it in a far more specialist way because I'm a legal aid practitioner by choice and I'm a parent advocate by choice. So I'm acting for people who've got learning difficulties, mental health difficulties, and however different their cases are, I think the main link between all of them is poverty. It's poverty of education, 
of circumstances, of choice and of expectations. So I still think there's a political edge there, but it's just now it's become much more synced into the type of clients I represent and therefore how I do the job. That's a very long answer. Very long answer. But it's because it's, I've had to think about it quite deeply. It's a very full answer. And I'm really grateful for it, actually, because I had no idea that you were an activist before. So would you say that you're a natural advocate then? I've always been gobby. I'm not quite, my mum. <laughs> what does gobby mean? <laughs> my mum said I had the gift of the gab from very earlier stages. So if there was always an argument to be had in class or an issue to be had with a teacher or something to be taken up. It was always me, you know, the smallest in the class that had the largest voice and was first to come to the front. So I think, yeah, I've always had a lack of understanding that sometimes there's a time to be quiet and sometimes not. It's always straight to the front row, really, basically with me. And what do you think in terms of advocacy is a particular part that you are naturally good at? I love advocacy. I think if you can use words... And you can use words both to communicate with people and to communicate on their behalf, then that's a skill which we should really learn to value because so many people don't have the ability to articulate what their innermost feelings are. So for me, it's the ability to make a communication link between my clients and then between me and the other advocates and me and the courts. All of those types of communication are very different. So I think we should be more frank about the different styles we have in different ways of getting that relationship established because you've got different goals as a result. But all of it requires you to be prepared to listen as well as speak and to read the runes of the room and the client or the environment. So I think it's a really sophisticated process that we go through when we're a barrister. Um, very easily we sort of take for granted the skill base we're using but it's a really sophisticated skill set that you eventually hone as a barrister. Now I've seen you exercising this very sophisticated skill set. It was an absolute honour actually to see you in action when we were in a case together. When you were developing your advocacy skills Were you proactive about that? Were you looking at books or going on courses? Or do you think it was something that developed naturally for you? When I came to the bar, it was in the dark old days where something such as mentoring didn't exist. Don't forget, we didn't really have the internet. So I came to the bar in 1986. You know, we didn't have mobile phones. So, you know, so when you're talking about what access to information did you have, I had a library or I had the people I worked with, that was it. Didn't have any female role models. There was no one to, that I could look up to as someone that I wanted to emulate. Mike Mansfield was the person that I hero worshipped and that was why I joined Toots Court. So you learnt only by experience because you weren't led. You know, the type of work I was doing at that level was you just bouncing in a court of different ways. So I think it was just a question of trial and error. Those poor clients I had, poor things. But I re- just remember I'm a prep queen I don't think you win cases by winging them. You've got to read the papers, and I don't mean reading the papers at the bare minimum. You've got to read the papers that the other side don't read. So you learn from the beginning what the structure of the case is about, and you reconstruct it in the way that most suits you. I never take a narrative from anyone else. It's my job to create the narrative. So I think it was through reading the papers and understanding how selective, for example, a local authority case was when there was more material there, That's what taught me that there's no shortcut for prep. 
and then having done the prep there is no way that you can win a case for a client unless you've got a clear strategic plan and you know how to create it both outside court and inside court. I would like to delve into the subject of prep and I love that you use the phrase prep queen because I will be using that from now on really to, to describe you. But before we even get into that, I know that you were the first person from your family to go into university. And I was also wondering if you felt like you fit in when you initially started your career as a barrister. And if you did fit in, that's great. If you didn't fit in, what did you have to do in order to make yourself comfortable? So again, I think you need to think about what the bar was like in 1986, because there wasn't the ability to compare yourself to anything, anyone other than the person you saw in court, because we didn't have things like web portals. We didn't have chambers brochures that had images up what you had to do was you get a bar directory from the bar council and that just had basic information about the chambers the numbers of people in it and I just remember not seeing very many women's names I didn't see any non-English names can I say but I didn't really know enough about the bar to not quite know how a fish out of water I was So because I came from a single parent family, because as you rightly say, I was the first person to stay on at school beyond the age of 16, let alone go to university. I was the first one to go to Oxford and I was the first one to become a professional. That's the way we can term our job. So I had no one in my family group or my friendship group to be a role model to tell me what to do or not do. And it was only when I came to the bar that I saw how people conform. So that time I can now say it was like a lady die lineup because you'll all have watched the crown. So it was a time when a lot of women at the bar tended to come from the middle classes rather than working class. Those you saw, even if they didn't come from there would affect coming from there. So they'd wear pie crust collars, pearls, God, it was dire and, you know, high necklines. And I didn't, I didn't, that wasn't me. I had bright red lipstick. Some things don't change. I had piercings. My hair colour changed from month to month, from jet black to bleach white. I rocked a sort of 1950s Gina Lollabrigida slash Lolita look. So I wore black, really high-fitting, black-fitted 1950s clothes I got from the charity shop, or I wore quite severe mouse suits and very big jewellery from Butler and Wilson. So I think it was pretty obvious I didn't fit in. But but that wasn't going to do anything uh, in terms of changing my attitude about how I argue cases or the people I argue cases for. The one thing I do regret dropping is I lost my accent. And I, with hindsight, I think that's a really big mistake to me because my home accent is very, very London, really London. So I'll say brown. But I can't do my voice I was born with unless I'm back with my family, in which case I'll swap immediately. But I can't put it on now. This is now my more normal voice. And in court, it probably gets lower and deeper because I just learned early on that women's voices weren't heard. And when I say not heard, I don't just mean orally they weren't heard. They weren't heard because women, in order to be heard, had to fit within certain type of ways of being, and that wasn't me. So I think the thing I decided to drop to get one hurdle out of the way was the accent. And that was selling up on that. Because we don't hear, this is one of the things, when we, well, the reason we're talking, Bibi, is you know I'm quite outspoken on Twitter and through Gresham and on various other podiums about 
how the bar has to change if it's going to survive to reflect the society we serve. It can't be the preserve of white, middle-class, straight guys. It's got to be everyone we know has got the potential to do the best for the people they want to represent. So if we are clear about the fact that we are going to embrace that, then accents matter. So don't think I'm stupid if I start talking in a really, really broad London accent and think I'm just here to clean your windows, for example. Don't think just because I've got cut class, you know, accent, I'm actually posh. It might be that's an affected accent. I'm not saying I do. Clearly, I don't. But I think if we don't speak with our natural voices, then we give a really misleading impression to the young because if we don't sound and look like them, or one of us doesn't, then we aren't the profession that will embrace them because they don't see themselves represented. So, yes, I don't think I compromised on my attitude. I don't think I compromised on having quite a distinct visual style in court. I don't think I compromised on the sort of work ethic and not conforming to what was otherwise been quite easy. I had a stand-up issue with the judge about me wearing a brooch in court at one point. And now, of course, with Baroness Howe, we know it's a symbol of, of that we can now embrace, but it wasn't back then. But yeah, I'm disappointed in myself that I dropped my Cockney accent. Before we started having this discussion on the podcast, we were talking about neurodiversity. And of course, you've mentioned gender, race, and so on. But how do you think the bar really should practically approach neurodiversity? Because of course it should, but what can we do? Well, the first thing we should do is recognise it exists. I'm really confident that if you did a straw poll of 100 barristers, about 90 of us would be on the spectrum because you've got to be slightly on the spectrum in order to do the job we do. What other job would you possibly take on and legal aid that required you to do a job where you don't know when you're going to get paid, how you're going to get paid, who your client's going to be, how or not the court environment's going to be, how much it's going to cost to get to court, how much you're going to lose for tax and clerk's fees, and no sick pay and no pension. And yet, despite that, we invest our heart and soul in the cases we do. And we put hours into legal aid work, which are never remunerated because we are completists. And then we perfect our style in the terms of the way we do our questioning. I redo questions in my head you know, not just days, but months after I finish the case, I redo submissions in my head on a loop. They can come back to me a year or so later and I'm redoing them in my head, you know, literally rewriting them as I'm scripting them. That's not normal. That's not normal. Oh, wow. (laughs) Really? Because, I mean, some of your submissions can go on for over an hour, certainly. Are you saying they're really boring? They go on that long? No, they're not really boring. I I have been gripped. Anytime I have heard them, I have been gripped um, and listening intently. But <laughs> when you're going over them, is it like an outline? Just rephrasing. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what did I miss out? How could I have said that better? What point did I miss? How would I have woven that in? I see. I really think about the really good bits. I think about the things I could have done better and try to rephrase them. I can't say it's a helpful exercise because the case is gone. But I I think that's part of the mentality of never quite being satisfied. You've done it quite well enough. That perfectionist streak, which drives us to having the most extraordinary work ethic. So would it be a fair assumption that these are the cases in which you weren't perhaps successful? No, no, no. No, all of them. Anything, anything. Any of them. Anything. But that's the way I prep. So when I prep cases, when I'm given a brief... 
I don't read the material that I think the judges are going to read first. So I don't read the Guardian's report. I don't read the experts' report first. I read the material I think should inform those reports so that I'm not influenced by them. And then I cross and compare to identify what parts are relevant that I can then pick up. If I then read the experts' reports, I read the experts' reports, and the experts in my cases, you'll know, because I deal with not just sex abuse cases or ISIS cases or ritualised abuse, not that type of thing, which is more fact-specific, but I deal with a lot of um, child injuries, fatal cases. So in any case, I'll have to understand how how a baby has got to be transformed from a living, breathing, soft, warm entity to be a collection of blood and bones on slides after a post-mortem. And I'm saying that really brutally because that's the process you have to undergo in order to try to recreate that child's dying moments or dying days. So that means in our cases, we'll cross-examine any number of ists, We'll cross-examine pathologists, you know, neonatologists. We'll cross-examine those who examine eyes, those who examine bones, those who examine, you know, and try to understand the neuropathy of the brain. And the only way you're going to try to understand their world is by not being frightened of the material they're looking at. So you have to read the medical records. You have to know what happens with the, the SATs report, the SATs levels, the oxygen levels. You've got to look to see how the nurses notes feed in with the doctor's turns because you can win cases by picking up on things on timing there's no point having a eye exam of a baby long after they've been in hospital and have fits for example because then the examination of the eye is affected by the intervening events so you're looking for significant intervening events and the only way you can do that is if you're not frightened of the raw data which is hard to grapple with because it's hieroglyphics but that's the way you break the fear barrier and that's the way you can make a connection between what you're going to have to cross-examine on and how you're going to chisel out that piece of information that everyone has either not spotted or not seen the significance of or hasn't put in context so for me preparation is first of all I do the index right I've got an easy way so cases are so huge Normally, my cases involve thousands and thousands of pages, and that's quite intimidating. And we never say that, but it's true. So the one of the ways in which I do it is I get the index out and I just flag up. I just go through marking up the papers, so the statements and then the experts' reports and then the documents. And somehow that means I break down these thousands of pages into something which are now almost like a novel to me because I can see where the chapters are. And then I start reading the chapters But that very first stage of doing the index flagging is my way of, oh, it's not work. You know, it's not really that bad. It's just a little bit of filing. But in fact, that's my way into the case. Then I go into the deep stuff. Then I go into the medical records because that's my next fear barrier because I know that's going to be a hard slog. So you may as well tackle that first. And just to give a bit of context for our listeners, when we get our cases, they're put in a bundle. And in the first section, section A, are what we call preliminary documents. They're usually documents that the lawyers prepare, a summary of the case, issues and the party's positions. Then section B will be for all of the court orders. Section C will be for witness statements. D will be for care plans. So the local authority will prepare a plan for the child. And then section E will be for the expert reports. And F, G and so on will be for a myriad of... Hospital reports, medical reports, 
housing reports, you know, one report, you name a report, it's there. It's there, exactly. Social media. Oh, my, our lives have exploded since we've had social media disclosure. Please, people, when, you, when, you, when you're having an argument with your girlfriend and you, you, you're, you, you know you've had a few lagers, don't, please don't write it down because when we see these records, it totally undermines the defence we've been building up for you when we can see what you've been doing. Yeah. Social media, our workload has gone through the roof since social media became accessible. Absolutely. My mantra in life is not to put it in writing. The first chapters you read are not within the bundles A to E. You're looking at that raw data and forming your own ideas, impressions yourself. Yeah, it's hard graft. But if you do it at the beginning, you're way ahead of the curve. And then you've got a chance of deciding how you're going to reconstruct the narrative. Because... Very few people would have done that piece of work that early on. And that enables you to work out, for example, when we have experts instructed in our cases, there's the letter of instruction to them where um, the first tranche of work is identifying what you can ask them to do. The next is the experts meeting. And then the third is cross-examination. One of the pieces I put in the FLBA submissions on experts was that we can't be expected to do reasonable questions to the experts until we've got proper police disclosure or medical disclosure so it's just a stab in the dark and the experts need to be prepared to do more than we've asked because actually at that stage it's just a courtesy call frankly in the letter experts meetings depending on the case i either will or won't contribute because i don't want my cross-examination to be exposed in advance but i will ask for a discussion to establish the facts upon which my cross-examination may arise so I don't leap in there without being sure I can leap back out again. So I keep one foot dry on the side. And then there's a real work, which is a cross-examination prep for the experts. And that's a whole different league. Before we get to that, I think what I wanted to know was how you master the papers, but also how you get a real understanding of whatever area that you're reading. I've seen you go head to head with a microbiologist and completely, you destroyed her evidence. We couldn't use it. It wasn't helpful. Joe. thank you very much. <laughs> and also with, with um, a paediatrician, you just tore his report to shreds. Yeah, he was, he was an unprofessional witness and it was a total joy. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think I'd seen you any happier than after that, to no, be honest with you. No. The point is, I don't think I've ever had a case before where as a result of my cross-examination, I've succeeded in an application for the entirety of his written records and his oral evidence to be expunged from any file to have no weight placed whatsoever on his contribution. She did that. I did. I did. So what do I do? I research. I research. I do Google Doctor. I belong to a number of medical institutions. So... I look up their training to check whether they've done what their training requires them to do. I look up, but if it's a hospital, I don't want to give too much of my stuff away here, but I, now I'm sort of committed to the deal. I'll check and see what their complaints record is like. I'll see how often the hospital in that particular department have been referred for underperforming. I'll check what the lab hygiene standards are like. And then I'll check what the gold standard is for the microbiology results and I'll compare it to what they've done. I look to see if they've done the samples. I look to see whether they've taken the right tests at the right time at the right intervals and whether they've applied the guidelines for the children as opposed to the adults because that's often where people cock up. So 
I Google stalk them in obsessive amount of detail. Go back to that neurodiversity point we talked about before, because it's, it's a competition, all right? And I want to win. I want to win every single witness. I never go into a case without thing, however bad it is. And the only reason I get instructed is because it's really bad. Anyone listening to this should realize that as a legal aid silk, you need to get governmental approval in order to have us instructed. And we can only be appointed when the powers that be, with their very, very, very tiny purse, decide to open it a little way and let the little, you know, silk breath come out. And then we come out and we brush off our dusty shoulders and we appear. But we are used in a tiny proportion of cases because we're an expensive resource for the Legal Aid Fund. And when we come into cases, it's because there is no other way that the court can fairly dispense the concept of justice to parents. And so if we're going to be used, then I think it's our responsibility to try and make a difference. But it means that there's no winners in the cases I do. I'm only in because it looks like it's a slam dunk. So that's got to be something you take as the challenge. So the idea, I think, is if the case is overwhelming, how are you going to deal with it? It's like, how can you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You take every witness even sequencing of witnesses is really critical. So you'll remember, taha, you'll remember that I was awkwardly interested and directed about the sequence of witnesses because the sequence of witnesses and the witnesses who choose to give evidence are crucially important. So I want witnesses of fact before experts so that the experts give evidence on the fact as given as opposed to what's in a statement because that's not evidence. That's not evidence until it's sworn and attested to. It's evidence if I don't challenge it, but for a witness who's coming to give evidence because I'm going to challenge them, what they say in their statement is not evidence at that point. It's the proposal of what they're going to say. Too many family barristers forget basic civil rules of practice. We are too lazy about things that really matter, and we can't be allowed to forget what is the difference between something written? You know, we know what the difference is with hearsay, for example, but we are far too loose about putting to the challenge that in practice by having experts giving evidence after witnesses of fact have been to witness box. And you know how in cross-examination the ground can shift. I also think about sequences. Again, I'm really not sure I should be doing this podcast. I'm really not sure. <laughs> Don't worry. I've asked other people about it. So, that's not a secret that you're giving away, I okay. you. <laughs> so, for example, you know, medics don't like disagreeing with one another. So I look to see if there's a meeting in which my clients made a so-called admission. I'll look to see how many people there were in the room, who was taking notes, where the most favourable ones are, and where the mistakes have arisen. And I will choose the ones I can pick first for mistakes, for example. And I may go for the mistakes first. And then I'll proffer up something that might give them an exit line because someone else has been making the notes and I'll give them a way out, which is, you know, obviously everyone can make mistakes. It's a very stressful situation. So if it's the case that there was actually someone in the meeting that was making the notes, you would accept, would you not, that that would be a more reliable indicator about what happened than your recollection now? Because clearly you've already got confused. Yes, of course I would. Right. So if I looked to a note in the meeting taken by X and this was recorded, you'd have to accept that was more likely to be correct, wouldn't you? Yes. Thank you very much. Move on. So, you know, that's the way in which you decide how you're going to play against one another. People who ostensibly have been 
there at the same time doing the same things. It's the same thing you do with ambulance crews and paramedics. You don't want to have people doing frontline work all traipsed up for you to ask one question. You need to be proportionate. So you're going to choose how you're going to interplay the written records with the police statements and then the actual notes, including... I'm, again, I'll say it again. If this comes back to bite me, BB, you are going to be to blame. So people never read, obviously, and why should they, accounts given by colleagues. They'll only, in anticipation of going into the witness box, read their own. So you can immediately change the narrative by putting to them something from their colleague and they're not going to want to disagree because they're their colleague that must have a bearing on what they're saying but they don't know it and so you can see that look of it's it's lovely i love it it's visceral when you're cross-examining them eye-to-eye contact is really important it's really important to know when to look and when to look away and to choose whether you're controlling the witness by what you're saying or how you're looking at them or whether you're interested or disinterested which is why virtual courts were such a different phenomena from being in court. Even things like positioning, how you choose, if you've got a particularly arrogant witness, particularly if you're a woman, how you choose to position yourself in relation to where they are in the witness box, You know whether you adopt a nonchalant pose or whether it's direct or confrontational or whether you choose to look at the judge instead of them. All of those type of things are part of those skill base that you bring into play because you're controlling the environment. The difference between being a barrister and being a witness is the barrister's got the unique advantage of having access to all of the papers, whereas a witness can only contribute for their segments. So you as a barrister have always got the advantage. You've just got to learn how to use it. That reminds me of what Professor Leslie Thomas QC said. He um, gave us our first episode, actually, of this podcast, and he was explaining that what he does is create a table or a schedule with what everyone has said about a particular subject and he went through in detail how he does that so I think that also alludes to what you were saying about comparing and putting to one witness what their colleague has said because they very likely haven't seen that do you use schedules and I assume you use a chronology of some kind but what do you use in order to really grasp those facts a chronology is the backbone of cross-examination because if you haven't got a good chronology and I mean a chronology for your own use a chronology that's cross-referenced to material that other people may not have realised irrelevant. That's the backbone, that's the spine, I think, of a cross-examination. I think the ribs are the schedules you prepare, which, for example, in the dead baby case, might be dealing with the eyes, the brain, and, yeah, the eyes, the brains, and the neuropathy. And then what you're doing there is comparing what people have said factually compared to what the experts have said. So that's a schedule which is dissecting the detail of the body the other crucial schedules are about the parents narratives so the first time they said something about what had happened to whom in what manner where who was recording it and then you do the next account and the next account so parents and then you cross and compare the changes between them because as we know in our cases inconsistent accounts are often used as an indicator of an untruth I don't think that's fair actually I think when you're looking an account from someone who won't have made a record there's lots that's missed out people remember what's relevant to them but it's a bit like going to the GP BB if you go to the GP and you say you're unwell and they ask you to give them a history 
you'll tell them what you think is relevant. But because you're not a medic, you may not know what's relevant and then miss it out. And that's why a good GP will ask you more questions, flush it out. In these scenarios, very few questions are asked. And so what's recorded is what the note taker thinks is relevant. And often it's the inculpatory rather than the exculpatory statements are noted. And distress isn't down there, which is a really important component about how someone reacted. So narratives or histories, as are given, are not complete unless you as the advocate have looked at the circumstances in which they are given and you've looked who else would have been around at the point they are given. Come back to my previous answer about how you cross-compare. That's a rib work of putting together your skeletal structure for cross-examination. But I think in the main, it's also about knowing, getting to know the papers with such intimacy that when you're cross-examining, you don't need them. What they are is your security blanket because I don't use notes when I'm cross-examining. I don't know if you've noticed. But... Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> okay, okay, so I don't use notes. So what will happen is I still use an old-fashioned blue book to anyone that doesn't know. It's a very traditional barrister's book. And I have my subject heading on the left. And then I'll have my page numbers on the middle. And on the right, I'll have memory prompts of just one word or two words which remind me where I'm going. In the main, I don't have more than about eight pages of notes. I'll maybe have about eight or nine headings because that way you and the witness can have a conversation, which is going to be directed for you by us, have no doubt at all. But that way you can jump around. Whereas the mistake, I think you're going to go on to ask me this, but I'll volunteer it anyway, which is the mistake I think many junior barristers make, and in fact, some who have carried on with habits they cling on to when they should have discarded them is having a question approach where everything is scheduled so they've got pages of questions I mean what's the point of that it's as though the witness is meant to know the script so you know you ask question one and two and the witness says oh yes you're quite right about that blah 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 and therefore you can go on to question three or four that's bollocks you know the witness doesn't know what their lines are So you can't cross-examine like that. You know, you've got to be able to be fluid. And the only way you can be fluid is, one, by doing your prep, prep queen, two, by being confident enough about the material that you can bounce around the issues so you still retain control, even if the witness goes off in a different direction, because your job is to bring them back onto the route. Some people do write their questions out. (laughs) But when we're looking at going to that high level of much more complex, bigger cases... How do you think we should be approaching our cross-examination preparation? Well, if you're writing your questions out, stop immediately. Because that means you're already tying yourself into a mindset where there's a narrative between you and the witness and the witness doesn't know what half of their script is. So, you know, if they if they decide not to answer the question that you've written out in the way you predicted they were, then you're going to be stumped. So the way in which you go to the next level is you reduce it to issues not questions, but issues. So you have an issue on your left-hand side, the subject you're going to. You know, you might give yourself a prompt of the first quotes from the papers. It's often a good way to do. And then you've got your page references for where you can riff off to get more detail. And that way you can reduce what you're writing to a minimum so that you're not flustered when you've got Well, obviously some people may not paper now because obviously we're in a totally paperless age. But that way you can almost tab up where you're going without getting dragged down by lots of detail of reading when your brain just needs to focus on the witness. 
You don't need unnecessary word clutter in your head at that point. If you've done your prep and you know where you're going and you know where your page references are, and always check your page references the night before you're cross-examining because you get that wrong and you're totally flustered. But if you've got the right page references and you've got your trigger words next to them so that you know where they are, you don't need that much more. And that way you can dip and dive in between issues, always making sure you're in charge of where the destination points are instead of being led by the witness's answers. Because the point about being the barrister is you're in charge of your questioning and the task is to direct the witness down a particular route where you're the only one that's got the map. A question that I have for the prep queen is this, how long does it take you to prepare? And I know that's a how long is a piece of string question, but I think what I'm really guessing at is a lot of your cases will take weeks and weeks. And I was just wondering, is it months that you're preparing for before you get to say a two week case? No, I do back to back cases. How does that work for you if you're doing back to back cases? I don't sleep. No, I talk about uh, well-being and I'm really bad practitioner of it. I've got better under COVID about trying to give myself a break in between work. I think I have to acknowledge I'm a last-minute prepper. So my real prep happens in the week before the trial. But that's why the pre-prep is so important because that way you can't leave it that late to start getting into the detail. And I tend to read the papers really thoroughly once because once I've done the once I know where I'm going and it's extraordinary how much of that you can remember when you come back to use it for cross-examination so when I'm prepping cross-examination and I'm going through the papers I do the same thing at the same time so I go through the paper in my lovely blue notebook as I'm going through all of the statements and all of the medical reports I'll have my blue notebook down in headings and as I'm reading under issues so say it's eyes retinal hemorrhaging I'll have a blue notebook section which is under that and I'll interpose in that part of my prep everything coming from every source, whether it's the medical records, whether it's the experts, whether it's the nurses, the doctors, so that by the time it comes to cross-examination in that week's build-up, I've actually got the material down there. Then it's a question of picking up those lines and then reformulating them. But the reading has already been done. I see. But the last-minute prep... I describe it, I mean, Paul Story and I are sort of king and queen of the front row in terms of Medned. That's what we really enjoy. We hunt together. Do love the smell of blood. And I think you'll find with both of us that we'll describe cross-examination as the night before we do our reading. So someone's given us a pack of cards. This is my analogy. Paul will now have to accept it because he's my mate. Where we're given a pack of cards... And we've read all the material, which is a pack of cards. And then it's as though someone's knocked our arm and the entire pack is on the floor in chaos. That's the way I feel the night before. And then somehow in my head overnight, it's as though I'm reshuffling the cards and they're forming hands. And by the time I wake up in the morning or four o'clock in the morning, I've got the hand. And it's the first line. I think the thing that we don't, think about often enough is how you're going to go into what's the first points you choose to take in cross-examination and that's the most difficult part of your prep what's your angle what's your first hit and it's that that I think is the hardest thing to resolve and it's that that emerges you know by four six a.m in the morning after doing the work 
When you said that you feel like someone's knocked the cards out of your hand, I thought you were going to say they actually feel really nervous. Do you get nervous before you don't? No, it's odd, isn't it? I only get nervous about things that I can't control or that I know I'm deeply inadequate at, like technology, or about things I'm unfamiliar with. So in the Court of Appeal, and we did re-HN, obviously the DACC case earlier this year, I was really anxious about protocol. So whether one robed up, even though it's remote, how we would manage the whole remote thing with a bundle that was electronic, you know, how I'd manage making sure my client was being taken into account, how I'd manage the technology, being terrified that the technology would defeat me. That does make me nervous because it's outside of my control and it's my weak spot. I'm a paper fan. One of the ways in which I prep, the way I've said, is I go through, Jonathan, my husband, calls it my colouring in stage. You know, I've got my highlighters and I've got my colour tags because I do themes. So when I look at a bundle, I've got a really visual photographic memory. So I don't very often have to know where the page is. I know where it is on the page and whereabouts in the bundle. It was put to the test to me once after I'd done a long child abuse trial by my junior that didn't believe me whether I could find a reference amongst, I think, by that's probably about 5K pages. I don't have anything less than that. And I can. I knew where it was in the file, in the section of the file, on what bit. But that's a file-based paper system. I find doing it on my iPad, I use Liquid Text. That was the tool I used under COVID to get to use with uh, electronic bundles. It's great for prepping by reading through because it's the nearest equivalent to pen and paper. But I've got too many tabs and I can't see them organised like a, a file. There must be a way around it. But, you know, the size of the screen is still limited. I know we can make it bigger, but I can't see. My screen may be the size of, you know, a garden by the time I've done all my writing, but I can't see that. So I think that's a real limit. And I do think that's going to be something that divides us oldies from you, you know, technological kings and queens as we go forward. I have to agree. I think there's someone who's going to become a billionaire who can figure it out for all of us and make it easy. <laughs> it's easy to use. So now just focusing on some of your cases, really, a just slightly um, different aspect, because I know preparation is so important. And unfortunately for me, I've been trying to find shortcuts in these interviews and there just aren't any. I've just found that I have to work even harder, but smarter. You come into cases, as you said, when everything's gone wrong. Your clients have often been accused of doing some kind of wrongdoing in respect of a child. And it might seem that the case is unwinnable. In an article of yours that I read, I thought there was a great set of words that you had. You said, so I work, I plan, I plot. What I wanted to know really was about the strategies and tactics that you use with your opponents. I try to divide not to associate the barrister with the case they're running, I think is the first thing. We've got a responsibility to make our working life functional without being abusive. And we need to remember that when we're the barrister. So again, under COVID, I think one of the things we missed most of all was the way in which we could break out from the cross-examination client mode into the we are in this together mode because in the most hideous cases that you've got 
the bar, the family bar is a really small world. You know, we know of one another. We know of people's reputations and we come across people time and time again quite often. Unless you're like me and you end up being bounced around the country in a court you've never been in front of with juniors you've never met and opponents you've never met before. But that's why it's really important that you are professional but approachable and you're prepared to come outside and shake off the client's case by saying, do you want to have a cup of tea or I'm going to do a tea or coffee round? Who wants X, Y and Z? Once you let the case get under your skin such that you can't be civil to your opponent, then you're already, you've gone too far. The the opponents I really respect are those who understand why you might be running a case and why it might make it hard work for them, but don't blame you for making them work hard. They don't take a point that you're taking and you've won against them personally. The opponents I really dislike, and there are some, are those who pull, who try to pull a fast one, who say something outside court and something differently in court and you're going straight on my list and you'll never, ever, ever be recommended for any brief, ever. And reputation is all. So I think you've got to play really straight with your opponents. Don't say one thing and then do another. And otherwise, we can't function. If we can't trust what one another says outside of court about what they're going to do inside of court, then there is no way in which we can cut through the crap that means we litigate the things that really need to be litigated. Because if you lose that trust relationship, then you have to take every point because you're fearful. If you don't, it's going to be taken in a different context against you when you're not in control. So my mission is to, when I'm outside court, is to be personable, funny, talk about jewellery or rescue dogs, to try to do something and say something that means that we don't forget at the end of the day, it is a job. Another person in a case that can say one thing outside of the courtroom and a completely different thing inside the courtroom is your own witness. And I think we've all had that experience. So what sort of techniques do you employ to get the best out of your witness when they go into the courtroom? My witness, you know, my client. Yeah, your client. Yeah. So I think the first thing you have to do is to be frank with them. So it's the encounters out of court that matter to set down the working relationship. And the first thing I do is I explain what our different roles are because we take too much for granted. Our clients can't be expected to know what the difference is between the solicitor, the legal exec, the note taker, the barrister, the silk. And why should they? So the first thing I do is explain what our roles are and how important teamwork is. So I give the analogy of, because most people have you know encountered an NHS system. So I say in most situations when you've got a problem, health-wise, you're going to go to your GP and your GP in 90% of the cases will be able to listen to you, give a diagnosis and you go off and get your prescription. But in the 10% of cases, they hit a problem where they think, oh, that needs that needs a bit of expertise I don't have or access to resources I don't have. So they send you off to the hospital to see a consultant. The consultant will look at the scans they've done and think, oh my God, that looks trouble. And they send you up to the next level. And I use that analogy in our work by saying that the solicitor is the equivalent of the GP. You know, they function without our help in the majority of cases. But when they hit a problem that requires either expertise in terms of advocacy or legal research or, you know, court strategy, then they're going to refer you to the bar. And that's where you see, you know, the equivalent of the consultant. 
And there are some cases where the junior barrister comes across an issue which is so serious, they either don't have the expertise or they don't want to carry that load. And that's when you get a QC in. So I explain that pecking order first, but then I make it plain that none of us can function unless we communicate with one another. So the client can't say one thing to one person and think the other's not going to know. He or she needs to know we have to be included in the loop. And I'm always really clear that a case is only as good as the honesty with us as the client. So I bring it back down to them the whole time and I make it really plain what's important to acknowledge. I take the really dodgy points to them. There's no point a client telling me on neglect, for example, that, oh no, the baby had a bath daily. Oh no, oh no, always wash them. And you think that's total bollocks. It's not. And I tell them that. And I've got a different persona in con. In con, I will tell them it's total crap, you know, and they'll get the unofficial Joe. And I'll explain really carefully that this is me, all right? This is the side of Joe that they're seeing, and this is the person they've got instructed. So don't muck me around. You don't want to do that. You want to get the best out of me, and that means you've got to give me the dirt. And then I explain the different persona I've got outside, so I'm really clear that when I go to court, they're going to see me talking to my opponents and when they see me talking to their opponents and they see me laughing and joking I'm not laughing joking about their case I'm not laughing and joking because I'm coming up with a deal with them I'm laughing and joking because it's a way of making communication work which means I get the best way of getting the evidence out and then I talk about how I'm going to be in court so I it that first session of meeting them doesn't really go into the detail of the real challenges the cross-examination issues it's about setting down the groundworks for how we behave and anticipating how they're going to be confused about the different type of outfits we put on mentally and verbally when they see us in different contexts, trying to anticipate how unsure they're going to be about whether I'm really on their side if they see me, you know, chatting with my opponent and talking about, you know, what cup of teas we're going to have or, you know, what we're doing at the weekend. They shouldn't overhear it, but they will do because we forget how visible we are. And I try to make sure they understand that there's the Joe, that they can call me Joe, in the conference where I will give them a hard time and I warn them in advance, I will do. I warn them that they don't want me cross-examining them in court, but this is the nearest that they're going to get to it because the only way I can get to grips with the case is if I take them to the bits they don't want to go to. So I'm fierce, but fair. Try not to talk in terms of belief because it's not my job to believe in what they're saying. I know that may be controversial. My job is to apply the letter of the law, which is the case has to be established by the local authority. It's not for my client to prove their innocence. My job is to look at the local authority case and to pick it apart and to challenge it. I don't have to prove my client's innocence. That's not necessary under our legal system. So I try to avoid emotive language with them about belief particularly after having been bitten in a couple of cases. So you learn, you know, through the type of cases you do and the seriousness of them. It's difficult sometimes not to be sucked into someone's story. But there's good reason now why in cases we're warned about placing weight on demeanour in assessing credibility. And that's because we're not psychologists or psychiatrists. You know, we're just people that do a job day in, day out, where we see the size of life in terms of child abuse that most people don't know exists. And we do it all the time, so we know it does. But you can't become mini judges in your own world. That's not our job. Very different when I'm sitting as a judge. 
And when I'm there as Delahunty QC, that's not my role. I never judge my clients, either for good or bad. As Joe Delahunty QC, how do you deal with bad facts? I run out of them, grab them, say, hello, come to me and work out how I can cottonwool them. I don't ignore them. They become my first best friend. Yeah, they're the bully in the classroom. You've got to go and make your best mate. You can't ignore bad points. If someone's done their prep and God knows we should all be doing it, then they're spotted. And if they haven't, I mean, what a lottery is there? There's a bad fact in your case. There's bound to be God knows how many of mine. And you're telling me that amongst the whole row, someone's not picked it up and the judge hasn't picked it up. Of course it's going to be picked up. You can't avoid it. So what you do, it's the first issues you go to. My little text, you know, when I went to my juniors is the good points will look after themselves. You just need to give them a little bit of polish. The bad points you positively run up and embrace and work out how to cotton wool them so they're no longer as damaging. You might not be able to get rid of them completely, but you can give a little bit of cotton wool, you can polish them up a bit, you know, you can put little rose tinted specks around different kinds. But you'll often find if you look at bad facts, they're not nearly as bad. Come back to the idea about a an admission by a client, for example, a slam dunk admission. And what you do is you take apart the sequence or your client had learning disabilities and that wasn't identified at the time, you know, or there's a contrary note or you've got video cam footage. But in particular with clients with learning disabilities, it's really important to unpick the circumstances in which they both understood what was being asked, how they were able to marshal the words to give an answer and how their answer was understood. And so if you think about a recording as having those three elements where there can be the means for a failure to understand what's being asked, what's being said, and what's been understood, then you can unpick a bad fact without needing to be anything other than very curious. You also sit as a judge. You've mentioned that. So when you're sitting on the bench, what are the common advocacy mistakes that you witness? The main one that is frustrating is not understanding the points that are going to make a difference to my decision. So in a limited amount of time, focusing on stuff which just isn't relevant for building up to the key point. The other thing that is too easy to overlook is how when you're sitting as a judge, you are dependent on the advocates for giving you key directional reading material. And we won't read the contact notes. That's what I'll do when I'm an advocate, but I'm not going to do it as a judge. I won't be reading all the data from the police. I rely on you to take me through that. And then I'll read around it when I see this is a significant point. So I think it's a poor advocate that assumes a judge hasn't read the key papers and tries to teach his grandmother to suck AIDS by taking you to things that you know that are there then what they don't do is turn the black and white into colour by taking you to mirror material that you won't have looked at. And that just freshens up your approach to the case. They make the mistakes that frustrate me, like reading out questions and not adapting their answers to what the witness is saying, just going through the route or banging on about points that they've lost, you know, because clearly the witness isn't with them. I think people don't move on enough to a different point, to a different area. I don't like it when advocates don't concede points in favour of, for example, the parents, when they can be fairly established because they're so into we've got to, you know, this we're going to win the care order. I don't like that. doesn't help me at all. And I sit as a judge, I don't assume just because I act for parents as a silk 
that I won't make care orders. I do, I do, and I do, and I do, because I'll test, but I will test the evidence far more rigorously because I am an advocate than I think possibly many advocates expect. So I won't be making a decision to make a care order or a placement order unless I've asked every question that will make a difference to my analysis when I go behind the scenes. So I think I make advocates work hard in a way they may not have anticipated because I'll throw issues back at them. I really believe there's value in having a conversation between bench and bar. What lessons have you learned for yourself when you've been sitting on the bench and then you go back to being an advocate, you think, oh, actually, I didn't realise that, but having sat on the bench, I know I will do X or I will no longer do Y. What sort of lessons have you learned from that? What I learn is about looking at the 360 view in the courtroom that we have to remember is the judge's advantage when we're in court. Um, so you can see how the you can see how the parents are reacting, you can see how they're how whether they're sitting next to one another or against, how they respond to evidence. You can see whether people are focusing on the issues or whether they're just, you know, on their their phones. So the it's always a salutary reminder about the enormous viewpoint that the judge has got, which is so much wider than ours. If you think about the court layout, when we're there in court, we're on the front row, you know, we've got our papers or our laptops in front of us, our client is behind us, but we've got tunnel vision. So if you're the barrister, you're focused on the witness or you're focused on your papers and you'll turn around and talk to your client, but they are, you know, you're being allowed to get on with your job. The judge is seeing you, how you react to your opponent's, really irritating and I do try to not to do it but it's hard is having like a running commentary by one barrister about what the other barrister is doing or them you know going I'm sure I do it in fact I know I do it but it's really irritating as a judge it's like don't try to mess it's just just doesn't work so I think that's something that I should remember more often sometimes we do that because we we're a bit stagey but if you're doing it and not thinking about it, then cut it out and always remember to warn the clients that they're being visible at all times. But yeah, so I think that's what I take back. I spontaneously have marshals into my court for them to see how different advocacy styles work because it's a really good way of them understanding from an outsider what's effective, how language is used or not used. And when they get to see the range of advocates that we have in the cases, or if I'm doing an applications day, I'll get so many advocates in front of me. It's like having 20 years of the bar paraded in front of you, where you get to hear different voices, different styles, different mannerisms. That's a learning curve, which you get in a day, which otherwise would take you decades to acquire. I'm a real fan of bringing people into the courtroom that might become very good barristers, but haven't thought about it as a program yet. So I was at a gig a couple of weekends ago, where the waitress that was serving me, really bright and bubbly, having a crap time by someone at the other table who was treating them like a a serf. And so we got talking and she said she was interested in reading law and psychology as an alternative. So she came and sat with me to Marshall for 10 days in Brighton because that's what I was doing and her learning curve has gone through the roof. Now, what she's got by that is one, and she came from a very disadvantaged background. You know, she's a first, she was working because alongside her studies, because the family couldn't support her going through, you know, to uni. So what she's now got as a result of that encounter with me is one, she's been given a unique access to our working world. 
Two, she's learned to see that we as barristers aren't other beings. And thirdly, she's got something that can go down on her CV where it says, I marshaled for two weeks with Professor Joe Delahunty QC using all my bells and whistles titles. And that gives her a leg up. And it's such an easy thing to do. It's so easy. And I think that's a real, that's where we should use our extraordinary privileged positions to be acting for people in the way we do in courts that are close to the public to make sure that our work is more understood and more accessible and we bring the best of people into it. Now, that may not have been what you're asking me, but I'm saying it because I really believe that there is more that each of us can do and should do without waiting for someone to say, join up to a programme. Every single person can make the effort to include people who wouldn't otherwise thought of being a lawyer or wouldn't have thought about being a social worker or wouldn't have thought about being a, a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist if we are just prepared to talk and to invite and to welcome. It's really easy, really easy. It absolutely is. And you're very vocal about a number of causes and certainly diversifying the profession is one of them, admirably so. And the other thing that you're quite vocal about, and I would say, again, bold, is about judicial bullying. Mm. What advice do you have to other lawyers who are encountering judicial bullying? Because I know, I know I've been there and I've kind of just laughed it off to myself and, and got on with my day. Sometimes it can be really disruptive and other times less so. But what advice do you have for others who aren't as bold as you? I think it's easier than to say than to do, but I think the key is that the person who's the object of the bullying shouldn't be the person that has to call it out. I think your colleagues at the bar should be there to speak up on your behalf because if you're the object of it, you become the rabbit in the headlights and you're reevaluating whether you've earned it. What have I done to deserve that? It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's got an impact on you. It's got an impact on your client that's sitting behind you. You're trying to process all of those conflicting emotions. And then the moment goes and it's moved on. And so it's like trying to grasp fog. So the people who should be saying something are your colleagues. That if something is happening that's inappropriate, for them to say, they can even deflect attention. So one of the things I try to say to when I'm trying to support people through this is to say you don't even have to be brave enough or bold enough to say that's out of order. You can just stand up to take the heat away. So if the barristers get it in their neck because they've taken a point or the judge has got crossed because they're raising something about disclosure, for example, I'm trying to give a more neutral example, and it's being a point that's unfairly taken against them, your opponent can easily stand up in a very neutral way to say, well, this is the chronology, actually, Judge, Your Honour. It happened, perhaps it might be put in that way because you're not aware that da-da-da happened. And what that does is it gives the victim a chance just to recover and it takes the judge's attention away so it doesn't become an absolute focus of attention and they don't get into that role and that whole victim-abuser relationship can be broken. So I think it's for your colleagues to be prepared to use deflective techniques, if not challenging techniques. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, so simple. So simple. And straightforward. Yeah. Yes, completely. So it's a side sweep, you know, people are very scared about taking the big points, but you can just break it away, just take a swerve. In a more general sense then, like what can we as advocates do to get judges on side in the first place? I don't know, PD documents, I hate to say it, but they are really helpful to understand what's an issue between the parties. 
Just to clarify, PD docs are documents prepared by the trial lawyers and lodged at the court before the trial starts. They range from your opening note to a chronology or even a statement of issues. Just this weekend, we heard from the president that there's going to be a renewed emphasis on PD documents coming in during the working day, the preceding day. He acknowledged that that would mean we need to get instructions in time for that to happen and be out of court for that to happen. So it's still, I think, going to be problematic for us as practitioners. But from the judicial perspective, I can understand why he's making the point. In the cases I've been dealing with the past couple of weeks, I've been receiving PD documents literally five minutes before the case is due to start. I think even if you're having difficulty getting instructions, it's better to put a one-page document in saying, I'm endeavouring to assist by doing X, Y, and Z, but I'm waiting on blah, blah. Just that matter of politeness, it's something I always do. I'm a great believer in orders need to be complied with when I'm an advocate. I don't breach orders. So if I know a deadline can't be met or I know my solicitor's told me it can't be met, then I tell the judge in advance. Remember I said about understanding what our civil procedure obligations are? An order's made by the court for things to be happening on time. We shouldn't just, you know, muck around with it. If we can't do it and we know in advance we can't do it, then say so. And that, I think that's good advice to take from our perspective as well. Don't suddenly wait until it's too late to make an apology and then think an apology is going to get you off the hook. So PD documents earlier, as a matter of politeness, if they can't be complied, put something in writing um, as a minimum and try to control the narrative. Your PD document is your first opportunity to be the person that gets before the judge the side of the case that you want to present. So why would you miss that opening shot of informing the judge helpfully what the issues in the case are and where they might find the most constructive evidence? What three practical tips do you have for our listeners to improve their advocacy? Prepare, plan, and then deliver. I love it. And can you also share details of where our listeners can connect with you online? Well, the Gresham website still has all my past lectures on for the last four years, and they're a really fantastic resource to go to. Don't just watch the lectures I delivered in the hall look at the downloaded notes because when I gave them there were almost like three lectures in one series so the written notes were written so that they could be read by Supreme Court justices at every level of professional engagement with all the data references all the text references and they are a significant body of work very different to the lectures I delivered which were meant to engage those who might not know as much about the law as we do so they were almost like a stepping stone approach So don't assume when you look at the lectures, which first of all, try to explain what we do in the family justice system, and then they dive into some of the issues about how to be a barrister and how to be a better barrister. And then they look at issues that I think we need to confront, like mental health and diversity issues and discrimination issues. So do me a favour and go and look at those, because I invested four years of serious thought and hard work into them. So that's Gresham College past lectures, Professor Joe Delahunty QC. Follow me on Twitter at JoeDQC, I think in. I don't really know how to use LinkedIn. I get so many requests and I don't know how to use it. So that's a less accessible way. But just give good feedback. You know, even those of us that are doing, it's quite lonely being this outspoken. And I don't sometimes know if I'm making an impact or not because it goes out into a void. And you're not quite sure if you're making a difference. 
So it would really be nice sometimes to know if I'd said something that had changed the way you were doing things. I think it's very likely. (laughs) Joe, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Oh, thank you for the questions, BB. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.